Hello and welcome to episode 7 of People 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 like games What's up, what's up? And welcome back to another episode of People Like Games. For those of you unfamiliar, I'm your host, Solo, and this just so happens to be a show about video games, esports, and gaming industry news. Episodes are available every Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and SoundCloud. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe. Anywho, we got a pretty good show for you this week. Uh, granted, the uh, amount of information is relatively slow in the gaming industry at the moment, what with Christmas and New Year's around the corner. And in addition to the fact that December is a month predominantly dedicated to celebrating the best of 2017, the more important and substantive news in gaming is likely going to wait until uh, post-New Year's. However, even so, I was able to find some interesting stories that uh, I believe might be worthwhile to listen to or to hear about, rather. And then for our in-depth segment, I take a look at cross-platform gaming and why that concept has not been standardized. Uh, and then to wrap things up, I had the opportunity to speak with Tyler Schrote, who is the CEO and founder of the Electronic Gaming Federation, an organization that aims to be the NCAA of collegiate esports and is also involved in establishing esports uh, teams for high schools around the nation. So an interesting conversation about the uh, sort of logistics of setting up the organization and esports teams at universities, the social importance of the high school esports programs and the way they add in a new group of kids into the process of school spirit and sort of the social and uh, personal growth that it'll offer uh, some kids that would not have had it uh, without this, uh, without these programs and how that is uh, some of the more important aspects in the work he does. So that was a, that was an interesting conversation and, and well worth listening to. He's an interesting guy. And, uh, but anyway, before I get into things, I do want to say thank you to the listeners. Uh, it has been a good couple of episodes. However, everything is going to get better moving forward. We got new segments coming up, better audio quality and a slew of new guests that are going to be really awesome and that you'll really enjoy. But without much further ado, Let's get into this thing. And where better to begin than a story I had mentioned last week, which was that Patreon had announced that it was going to be changing its fee structure and the way that it processed payments in its, in its initial model when an individual donated money to a creator. Patreon took a percentage and then gave that remainder to the creator. But they announced that they would be changing this in favor of a model that put the cost burden on the individual making the donation. So they would 
be charged the transaction fee, which I imagine is just a credit card fee of 2.9%, in addition to a 35 cent flat fee. There was a lot of backlash. A lot of the creators who are dependent on a lot of these $1 donators were affected the most. And the company, which usually doesn't get this sort of bad PR, backtracked pretty quickly and announced that they would be reversing that decision, but that they do believe that they have to change the processing fee structure payment model in the near future. So that is something to keep an eye on if even in the short term it has been uh, proven moot. Anyway, into more depressing news. Net neutrality has been officially repealed by the FCC. However, uh, or if you're not familiar with what that means, which I hope you are, that means that the government will no longer regulate high-speed internet as if it were a public utility. However, the fight is not over. Uh, don't let them cable the internet. Uh, there is new legislation in the works through Congress and there is a appeal being filed by a number of states general attorneys, uh, hopefully, or states attorney generals. Uh, I will be sure to put up the list on Twitter. Uh, make sure your state attorney general is on there. And if he is not, be sure to call and make this a fight because it's not an automatic repeal. It doesn't happen tomorrow, but it will happen over the course of the following year. And it's going to be important to maintain uh, a, a opposition to this legislation because it's going to have an effect on every everyone and there's not really much explanation needed to be given to a gamer on the importance of net neutrality. Uh, which goes into our next story of uh, the Steam community has been blocked in China. So the Steam community features have been blocked in China so you can buy games and you can play them but every single games even in-game social hubs have been uh, censored they also i apparently i guess the they uh, the rumors that someone mentioned or not mentioned someone was writing anti anti-chinese uh, slogans or whatever the case was it also happens to be curiously timed to Ten cents entry into the battle royale, whereas a, a recent statistic showed that almost two thirds of Steam's users were now coming from China, playing PUBG in particular. So, getting all the players to migrate onto Chinese, uh, to the Chinese versions makes a lot of sense, especially because ten cent is ten cent. But I guess we'll see what happens with that. I'll, I'll keep you updated on how that goes. Now, following up with PUBG. As I had mentioned, I thought the, the console version would be pretty good. Now I have a little bit of doubts, but the Xbox One copy sold a million, uh, a million in 48 hours. Uh, and they're also giving it away for free if you buy an Xbox, Xbox One between December 17th and December 31st. So if you're in the market for an Xbox One X, you can get a free PUBG. Uh, the creator of the game also mentioned on BBC Radio One Gaming Show how he believed that uh, gaming needed more IP protection, which to a degree I agree with, especially in regards with how Fortnite sort of obnoxiously copied the game. So it's not to say that, hey, Battle Royale specifically 
is not, you know, patentable or trademarkable, but at the same time, the drop off the circle, just the basic tenet of the game and the structure of the game is directly just nicked from, uh, from PUBG. So that, that's a fair argument, especially with now the 10 cents getting into it. So that's millions and millions of dollars that he's not necessarily even wants, but that should be necessarily protected in a case like this. But it's also tricky because digital intellectual property rights is a particular arena that is not very well regulated, especially when you have a predominantly technically illiterate Congress and government. And so uh, it is going to be an issue of the future because some of the patents and trademarks you find are sort of ridiculous, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, next up, Ubisoft Uplay is making some pretty cool offerings for PC. Uh, they're offering three games for free this month. Assassin's Creed Black Flag being one of them. And the other two are where it's Watch Dogs and world in conflict i guess they're trying to get people to desperately sign up especially because they don't want to keep paying a percentage of their online download uh, revenue to valve so makes sense then next up okami hd was just released for xbox one pc and ps4 it was released initially in 06. If you've heard of the game, it's gorgeous. One of the best games ever. Very well worth your time. If you haven't checked it out, it's for only $20. The last time the HD remix, our re, HD remake was released was in 2012 and on PS3. So if you're looking for a new game to play over the holiday season, I suggest it. Then DBZ is the, if you recall, Dragon Ball Fighter Z. The open beta is going to be uh, available on January 13th and 14th. Uh, if you happen to pre-order the game, it'll be available on the 13th. The game comes on the 26th. I still dislike it because I think it's sort of a rip that they have this season content structure as well as the fact that you have to pay $35 for additional characters that should be, if are available at the time of the release of the game should be included in the game. But that is an argument that I shall have at another time. Next up, a fake Cuphead game was released on the iOS. The imposter Cuphead game found its way to the market. Even though it was shut down within a day, it was listed as the official port of the Xbox game and was even listed under the Studio MDHR name. Uh, it's a fake company based out of Hungary, uh, and it was just sort of, uh, I guess, sort of came up. It had touch-to-screen uh, movements, which I would be miserable, especially for that game, which I will get into next week. But uh, the fact that they had to deal with that sort of miserable CUMDHR made a comment saying that it was the first time they dealt with someone using their actual name and trying to take the content. So don't do that to Cuphead. Let them have their time and let them have their fun. Next up, uh, if you recall the game Rising Thunder, which was a robot fighting game being made under at uh, under the Sorry, being made over at Radiant Entertainment, which was acquired by Riot. And so then the game sort of went into standstill. And I had 
thought that that was the game that Riot would be developing next up because it had long been rumored that Riot had a second game coming out next to League of Legends. However, this is not to be it. It was officially canceled by Riot Games, but the founders of the game, Rising Thunder, are releasing a community edition in January, which will be available for free. And they were also releasing the source code for individuals to potentially tinker with and make into a viable game, which would be pretty cool. And lastly, uh, the NBA is to sell in-game sponsorships in the 2K League. Uh, the 2K League set to start next month uh, with franchises uh, that take place in the inaugural season, being able to sell courtside advertisement rights, virtual jersey sponsorships, and virtual stadium naming rights, which is cool, but... Which I, which was a little bit odd because I, I assumed that there would have to be a crossover for the digital naming rights of a stadium in which NBA teams are playing. So that's sort of a legal issue that I'm going to be curious to hear about. But uh, it's, it's a good revenue uh, uh, generation system if it ends up panning out. Uh, the Overwatch League is doing a similar uh, unique merchandising route in terms of splitting revenue by introducing digital skins into Overwatch through a new currency called tokens. Because obviously in the future, you are not allowed to use real money. You use the money of the platform and its demands, which is sort of upsetting. But regardless, uh, as to the 2K League, these are great revenue concepts and business models, and they have celebrities doing scouting and all, and the league tryouts are set to begin on January 1st, but they still have not announced where it will be streaming, so a little bit of focus onto the things that are important uh, over there. But no, I'm just teasing. Uh, anyway, that's about all I got for you today in terms of news. Uh, oh, wait, wait, one last thing. Um, sorry about that. It looks like an unofficial announce or unofficial announcement was uh, found that the uh, Xbox fans might want to hear. Microsoft is supposedly coming out with a keyboard and mouse for the Xbox One X, uh, or the Xbox One rather, and so if that ends up happening that's going to be really curious as to the, uh, or really curious impediment as to the argument that cross-platform gameplay can occur because of the accuracy capabilities of mouse keyboard versus a controller, so... Anyway, stay tuned for after the message from our sponsor to hear a bit about the political and financial reasons behind why cross-platform gaming is not a reality rather than the actually relatively straightforward technological reasons that it could be feasible. Right after this. People Like Games is brought to you by Gunyo, that's gun.io, a professional freelance agency for software developers, a place for both developers and the individuals or company looking to hire them. Gun.io custom matches their clients with top professional freelancers from their over 25,000 
invite-only member community. Gun.io has remixed the humanity of an agency with the scale of a talent marketplace, which allows them to deliver the best value per dollar of any business in the software development space. So if you're in the market for a developer or happen to be a software developer looking for some new gigs, be sure to check out Gunyo, the best in the business. So where were we? Yes, cross-platform gaming. Uh, That is a concept that for a long time has been considered the holy grail of the gaming industry for being seemingly plausible, but being entirely out of reach. But in the past year, uh, we've seen the industry make its largest strides towards making that into reality. And for someone like myself, who grew up in a very particular generation of consoles and online gaming consoles as well, that is something that is a pretty revolutionary step. So having grown up on the Sega Genesis and PlayStation and then moving into the 2000s where I was in my young teens, the Xbox and the PlayStation 2 were the first online enabled consoles that were sold to the mass market. And if you recall at the time, there was a major importance to that fact because the lack of cross-platform gaming meant that you would end up having to buy the system that a majority of your friends ended up having, especially if you want to play online. So, you know, early games for Xbox weren't too particularly online oriented, so that was never too much of a worry. And so most of my Halo playing was done through land parties rather than online. But then as you move towards uh, subsequent evolutions of the game in two and three, and they started making online multiplayer gaming a focus of console games for the most part, uh, it became just one of the biggest decisions for buying a console. And so for me, it sort of became a division, or maybe even for gamers, if not only for me, that the Xbox was the console that you were going to buy if you wanted to be able to play multiplayer games online. PlayStation 4, or but rather PlayStation 2 was going to be the game that you purchased if you wanted to play single player games and uh, PlayStation specific. So if you were a Final Fantasy person, you would be on the PlayStation. And if you are a Halo person, you'd be going to the Xbox or uh, Xbox uh, or rather Halo and sports games were predominantly better on the Xbox. Maybe it was a controller. Maybe it was just personal preference that I'm masquerading as a rational or objective argument. But the Nintendo was always the sort of odd man out in that situation, given that they never really focused on the technological innovations or, or, or powerhouses that the Microsoft and Sony were trying to release with their consoles. It was never too much of whether Nintendo would be involved in that process, but as to why Microsoft and Sony weren't more interested in it. And so this all sort of just came up to mind because I had recently recently read an article on a game titled Brawlout, which is a 2D fighter style that or 2D style fighter that's going to be coming out tomorrow, actually, on the Nintendo Switch and later in 2018 for the Xbox and PS4. And the uh, interview was on Engadget and was with one of the creators of the game. And they were mentioning the difficulty of cross-platform gaming for a fighting game specifically. And he mentioned that 
they have a server in their game. And when they were trying to do cross-platform test, instead of four frames of input lag, they ended up getting at least eight frames on top of what the initial input lag would have been. And so you would have seen a difference of experiences depending on which consoles you were getting. And so it made me want to dive in a little bit as to why the cross-platform gaming is still not a reality. It doesn't or it is not a technical limitation that's been proven in September. Funny enough, if uh, you guys have heard, I am maybe a little bit of a fan of Fortnite, even though I, I don't like how they establish their momentum moving forward. But in September of the past year, they accidentally allowed a cross feature or a cross play feature that allowed PlayStation 4 players and Xbox One players to play against each other. Uh, it was only down, or it was only up for a few hours and was quickly taken down. And Epic released a statement that said we had a configuration issue and has now been corrected. And so they have proven there or they had proven that with the switch or push of a button, they literally could allow the ability for console uh, to allow cross platform gaming for consoles and PC. And so then, you know, a lot of people who I've spoken with, friends and people in the industry usually mention a few specific arguments as to that, why that wouldn't have been the case. But now we'll start seeing uh, more and more in, in a couple of the statements I'll get into as to why it is happening and why Sony is really just the odd man out now in this situation where it had been Nintendo. And I'm going to assume that has something to do with financials and uh, business strategy. And I'll get into why I think that. But the three major issues that have been brought up in terms of the differences of experiences for a console gamer and a PC gamer playing uh, against one another have been firstly the difference between uh, a keyboard and mouse and a controller. So with the controller on a console, you're more likely to have a finer control over character movement and direction. But on with a key, keyboard and mouse, you're more likely to have more precise aiming which could lead to competitive issues. So these three are, 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 or that is more delineated as a competitive issue than it is a, a skill level issue. Then up, they have the internal settings of a game, whereas in a PC game, you're able to optimize display settings to get the ideal frame rate. When it comes to console games, such as the Xbox or the PlayStation, you have set hardware requirement uh, or set hardware configurations that can't be as optimized as a PC, which again could lead to uh, perceptive or visual differences as to what each player is seeing. And so you're on a sort of uneven playing field. And then lastly, which is you would have assumed is the most obvious culprit for it, uh, the reason there wouldn't be cross-platform gaming, and that is network infrastructure and compatibility. But I thought about it for like 20 minutes and I was like, well, if say Sony, Nintendo and Microsoft decided to agree on a standardized server that connects all platforms and has input corrections that would allow for uh, an similar game on each of the consoles or even on a PC that could be avoided, but can't do much about that. But, you know, as I was saying, apparently since it's not the technical limitations or the feasibility of executing it, then what's the issue? So 
Microsoft was the first one to sort of jump in to the ring and say that, hey, we're going to be open to cross-platform gaming in the future. This was announced by them at the Game Developers Conference in 2016. And as the door was opened, the first game to take uh, the lead was Rocket League. It recently, uh, or shortly after the announcement, it introduced cross-platform gaming between the PC and the Xbox. And if you happen to be a fan of the Nintendo Switch, recently was added to the Nintendo Switch. So now you can play between the Switch, the Xbox, and a PC with very you know pretty wonderful results and the same thing happened for minecraft earlier this year as well xbox announced that they were open to cross-platform gaming nintendo took them up on it a port's coming out for the switch or it is or is out for the switch i believe and the xbox and pc all of which allow cross-platform gaming but lo and behold it is sony again who refused and with their comments to in regards to the Fortnite issue, in regards to the Rocket League issue, in regards to the Minecraft issue, it's always the same. The Sony spokesman just states that they have no profound philosophical stance against crossplay, but admit that there has been no conversation to allow the feature, which is sort of odd because a lot of other people are saying separate things. So the VP of the uh, publisher of Rocket League, Psyonix, said that the honest answer as to why PlayStation had not entered into an agreement to allow cross-platform play was simply that they did not grant permission. I uh, went on to further state that we ran all the servers. The way it works is we connect everyone through our own system. We handle everything. I can tell you this from Psyonix, we can do whatever we, we would do whatever we would need to to make it possible to be cross-network play with all other platforms and PlayStation 4. They just need to tell us what that is. It's literally something we could do with the push of a button metaphorically. However, Sony is still not interested in it. I think inevitably Sony has the most to lose by allowing cross-platform gaming because if you have looked at the sales numbers recently, the PlayStation 4 sort of won the early 8th generation, which we're on the fucking 8th generation of consoles and we still don't have cross-platform play. Uh, Sony is at a pretty big lead in terms of consoles or number of consoles sold. I do believe the Switch inevitably is going to catch up and surpass this generation of consoles. And Microsoft has the advantage that they're also a computer and operating you know, system. So it would have also always made the most sense for Microsoft to allow Xbox players to play against PC players because that is just a subject of preference as to which you want to play on. And I don't think it would necessarily hurt their bottom line in terms of someone refusing to buy the game on Xbox because they know that they can get it on PC or vice versa. For Nintendo, I think Nintendo has established itself for its sales moving forward. And so people want the portability, no other uh, a competitor is going to be entering into that portable marketplace until they have something that could legitimately contend with the switch and doesn't end up trying to be or doesn't end up being a Microsoft Zoom uh, for the industry or a Wii U, actually, which yeah, sorry, Nintendo, it sucked, but you learned and you played well. And so that leaves Sony, who 
are one of the few entities of these three that don't have the sort of larger fingerprint on a, a marketplace. And so for Nintendo with all its IP and it's just going to start licensing that shit out and start making a ton of money. You'll start seeing a Nintendo world. They're going to do, they're going to Disneyfy their, their products a little bit, which is good because realistically Nintendo has the best IP out of all the companies or, or at least the most historical. If you're not, if you're going to say that best is relative, then historically important is going to be Nintendo objectively. Then up is Microsoft, which with its new sort of PC revolution and the sort of falling fortunes of Apple, uh, sort of just works well in Microsoft's case, even though I don't really like the Xbox One X. I do think eventually, potentially, they will figure it out, which just leaves Sony. I really hope that Sony doesn't try to do what Nintendo used to do and hold itself off in a corner when the other, when its two competitors are starting to work together and they're starting to work together because they have products that now complement each other rather than which are in direct competition with each other. And so Sony's going to be the odd man out by next generation. We'll see Sony lagging behind. That's without a doubt. If Sony comes up back on top, I'd be frankly surprised. And so, um, if, if cross platform gaming is the future is going to be who adapts it first, that is going to lead it. And all signs already point to Microsoft and Nintendo. Uh, hopefully a few more games will be coming out that way. And until then, we're just going to keep playing the two games that are available and hope that someone introduces some server corrections that will allow a larger library of games to be played uh, across platforms. Anyway, that's all I got for cross-platform gaming, which, again, you would think would be a, a hefty, intricate subject to tackle, but in reality is just more financially and business motivated than it is a technological issue. So there's not much to get into on that end. Uh, anyway, coming up after a message from our sponsor, I will be sitting down with Tyler Schrote, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, who is the CEO and founder of the Electronic Gaming Federation uh, for a pretty, pretty awesome chat. So stick around and uh, take a listen. People Like Games is brought to you by me, Solo, the host of the show, and who is arbitrarily talking on this advertisement because we don't have a second sponsor. So, um, Nintendo, if you hear us, hit us up. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show, uh, everyone. This is Tyler Schrote, if I am pronouncing that correctly. From the Electronic Gaming Federation, which great name, by the way. And so you are the CEO and founder. So if you would not mind, can you explain to me a little bit about what the EGF is? Yeah, so EGF is, uh, we refer to it as sort of the next generation of the NCA. And our goal behind that was to create something that kind of took inspiration from traditional sports, how leagues and governance and all that sort of thing works, apply that to esports, uh, extend it into high school and make it international. So in practice, what that means is uh, we run a league uh, that's specifically focused on administratively backed teams in both college and in high school, uh, mm -hmm. separate leagues. Uh, so that means we handle all the governance, we get into you know regulation and policy and compliance with federal regulations and stuff like that. Um, 
kind of geared specifically towards larger Division One colleges, uh, and then at the high school level, we primarily work with state government and associations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part of what we do is uh, program development and platform. So we spend a lot of time with schools, helping them understand. Uh, what esports are, uh, what you can do if you think of esports as a platform, not just for competition, but for education. Um, and that includes everything from uh, hosting information sessions with professors or administrators or boards of education uh, to helping them like find and place coaches and players and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the platform for team management. And then the last thing we do is event production and media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of an extension of some of our educational programs where uh we kind of have like a, I guess you call it like an educational version of ESPN. And by that, I don't necessarily mean like educational programming mm-hmm. so much as uh, all of our broadcasts are meant to be part of these curriculums that we build into colleges and high schools. Uh, so people get the experience they need to become broadcasters, which allows uh, us to broadcast more matches and certainly find people that are qualified uh, through sort of a, a standardized standard hundred <laughs> no, percent exactly it, it, it opens up the pool of potential people interested more so by doing those that sort of partnership uh, angle um, so then if so how long ago did you sort of conceive of the idea because it's I would say in the past year and a half that you've seen or the past year year and a half that you've seen eSports sort of start uh, becoming mainstream in terms of viewing numbers, in terms of amount of money being put in. So just taking back, how long ago was the EGF concept conceived of by you? Um, it started with us uh, kind of mid to late 2013. Uh, I had been running Counter-Strike teams and tournaments and stuff like that since I was 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was in college, uh, I was an RA mm-hmm. and it, I went to RIT, which is like the super nerdy school, not... I know, I know RIT, <laughs> Rochester. Yeah, yeah, very very well known for that type of thing. Uh, and the, the kids that I had on my floor weren't really responsive to the normal type of stuff that like we were encouraged to do as RAs, mm-hmm. uh, like you know floor meetings and whatever. So the, the best turnouts that we got were when I ran like Minecraft tournaments or Quakelands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I started doing it again. Uh, mostly for people at RIT, and then it expanded out from there. So we have kind of been in a lot of, we've been in this space in a lot of different ways uh, with a a consistent focus on college. Uh, High school is relatively new for us, Mm -hmm. Um, but we've done it for the last four, four and a half years. Um, And I I think a lot of that kind of came down to timing where back then uh, we always talk about how as part of a class that we did, we used EGF as sort of this like conceptual thing Mm -hmm. uh, and they made you do customer discovery. So you have to go out and call like a hundred potential customers and stuff, uh, which for us was, you know, athletic directors, university presidents, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we called about a hundred of them had, I don't know, like 90 of them pick up the phone and actually talk to us. And out of that, maybe 80 to 85% either didn't understand what esports were uh, or gave us the, more hostile response to that. Mm-hmm. So the dismissive <laughs> esports yeah. aren't sports response. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so things have changed pretty significantly since then. And like you said, it's really been kind of the last year and a half where there has started to uh, show empirical evidence that you can go 
to anybody, whether it's, you know, an administrator at a college or a government official or my parents uh, and say, you know, here's esports on ESPN, here's esports on television, here's esports everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and now through some of the stuff that we've done, we get to bring in all these really cool use cases of, you know, what it means for a student to be involved in a program that mm-hmm. um, the alternative might have been they don't get involved in anything. Absolutely. So, it's it's been pretty cool to see that, and I, it's probably one of the parts that I love about my job the most. So, so then you played competitively. You said you started playing around ten years old in high school. What were you playing? Just Counter Strike Go? Because I feel like that was the only sort of major game that had that sort of competitive element. You know, minus I guess there's Warcraft. So I don't want to dismiss a lot <laughs> of the other legitimate games that are in there in terms of uh, either RTS or MMOs or MOBAs, but in terms of just massively global i have a, a a belief that maybe it was just counter-strike growing up or were there any other ones that have sort of went away um i played a little bit of everything my focus at the time was cs 1.6 because i started that when i was in beta mm-hmm. um i also that would have been around the time of halo i think because uh, like going into that would have been the very early days of MLG and some of the stuff that they did. So there, there were some others, and there was obviously Quake and, and other games that I just didn't really spend a lot of time with. Because mm-hmm. uh, for me, I would do a combination of uh, traditional sports, so like football and wrestling and whatever, and then I would go home and run my Counter-Strike teams. Uh, and after a while, I realized I was a much better manager than I was player. So <laughs> I know I, that uh, feeling. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I was... I like to think that I was a pretty good player, but I knew that I could find people that were significantly better uh, and make the whole team significantly stronger. So I I made that call. And as much as I miss playing, now I get to do it casually across a ton of games. uh, Okay, It's it's always better to play casually over a couple rather than competitively over a few. In my opinion, that's always, again, subject relativity. So then, you know, going as someone who grew up with gaming, because like I feel like most of our generation, I'm 27, I believe you're 25, if I'm not mistaken. 26. 26. So, So our generation basically just sort of grew up with gaming. But when you were in, you know, I was in, you know, middle school, high school playing Counter-Strike as well. However, it took me a little bit longer to understand what was what the potential was for esports. So for me, it was just a lot of multiplayer. It was land parties. It was clans. It was fun. It wasn't uh, big numbers of viewers. It wasn't large pools. What about the industry as someone like yourself who has been so uh, attached to it for such a long time, what about it did you feel would allow it to scale to what we're seeing now? So to someone, so to the average layman, they would be quite frankly surprised that esports is getting this big. But for someone like you who's been in here, you know, what what about it made you envision that this was a potential future? I think the the biggest indicators for me were more along the lines of technology advancements and ease of access to esports in the first place. Because, uh, I mean, <clears throat> if you went to like 2001, 2003, like anywhere in that area, uh, it used to be really, really hard to watch anybody playing. Uh, and you like you literally have to find out that there was an event, go to the event, or if you were in Counter Strike, there was uh, like HLTV and stuff, but they didn't have an audio component to it yet, so you had to sync up like Winamp or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a really big technical challenge for you to enjoy it, and it, that made it something that was kind of just for the super hardcore. Okay, so that's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. 
Yeah. So it, like if you if you really wanted it and you were in that scene, like you would go find that content. But um when Justin TV started and then Twitch evolved from that, that eliminated the barrier to entry for people to discover it. So that was kind of one of those moments where you had the opportunity for everybody to look at something that they may have thought of as a possibility, Mm -hmm. uh, but actually saw other people actually going out and doing it, which I I think was really big on the awareness component. It was really big to build uh, fan bases and, and, and things like that. And ultimately led to, you know, how things got monetized, at least, from an early perspective. Um, and I think now we've gotten to the point where the system for access is there and mm-hmm. it's more about expanding the awareness around that, not just into the generations that, you know, are currently really young right now, but also the ones that are much older outside of you know, the, the people like us, that, you know, grew up with gaming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so yeah. now to sort of focus in on what you have been doing over at the EGF before I sort of zoom out and ask a few macro questions about the industry. So thus far, you're about four, five years into your existence. Um, what have been some of the uh, issues that you've run into, uh, whether it's logistical, whether it's technical, whether it's organizational, that have been speed bumps in the development of what you're trying to create i think the biggest challenge for us pretty consistently has been um sort of a level of awareness and comfort for people that sometimes make decisions uh in different institutions that we work with uh or even parents of kids that may be just a little bit older than me but are still pretty far detached from playing video games Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that kind of leads into the logistical challenge of how do you, on a massive scale, educate a ton of people that uh, all use different modes of communication, um, all diff- you know, get their news from different places. Maybe they don't even read ESPN or, or watch any of the highlights and stuff from there. Uh, exactly. Might be incidental. Which is so, something I we'll get into yeah. as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we've spent a lot of time uh, kind of working through how do you educate all these different groups of people, trying to figure out how to prioritize uh, which of those is the most impactful at whatever stage that we're at. Um, for instance, like when we uh, work with state governments, we spend a lot of time making sure that everybody inside the organization understands that what we're doing um, it kind of hits on a lot of the, the mission points that they already have. We take them out to matches, like we show them everything that's going on. It can be a pretty intensive process. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it from like the startup perspective, that's not something that scales necessarily, but it is so important to make sure that everybody understands at a core concept that this isn't um, just like digitizing baseball uh, or playing fantasy sports or, or something like that. It's a fundamentally different thing. Yeah, exactly. To have to inform like them and then to... Uh, apply the actual business concept simultaneously is usually different because you got to prime your market and catch them at the same time. Yeah. And I think outside, that's always been the biggest thing, but I I think behind that, the next biggest thing that that we spend a lot of time with is is how we handle regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, So for us working inside the college world, that comes with a lot of extra requirements uh, because schools have their own standards. There's certainly a lot of federal regulations on, on how things work. Um, and fundamentally, there's uh, we borrow a lot, like I said, from traditional sports, so looking at the NCA, and that gives us a, a really strong opportunity to kind of look at you know 100 plus years of history at this point, 
and kind of dissect that entire road to where we are now, understand why the NCA as a brand, as an entity, you know, as a, a governing body for, you know, such a long time, how it came to be where it is mm-hmm. uh, and how we can ultimately improve upon that model. And See, I think you know, having those discussions are always a challenge, but they're probably one of the most interesting things that we could be involved with at this point. Absolutely. Cause that's what I was thinking. I was like, the, I imagine the, the level of regulations is pretty complex that you're going to have to deal with the separate uh, information when you're dealing with, I guess, a public or private university, or is that sort of under the same regulated guidelines? Um, there's similar, but there's always sort of nuanced things depending on what, state you're in even Mm -hmm. uh so we spent a lot of time researching pretty much every component of the world uh, to make sure that what we do is uh first and foremost sound uh that it works Mm -hmm. uh that it's something that ties into the familiarity that people have with traditional sports so it's a relatively easy transition um and then dealing with the very nuanced components of everything from uh, player compensation and representation to how we interact with administrations from colleges to how we deal with student conduct and what sort of precedent we want to set around that. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm actually going to, to, to grab all onto that and sort of expand something. So firstly, how many schools are you currently at in, in colleges, not high schools? Uh, we work with about 64 schools in different capacities. Nice. Uh, so they're primarily larger division one schools, mm-hmm. uh, some of them starting from clubs and some of them, you know, varying other stages. Yeah, I, I saw I think was your strategy was to work with clubs that hadn't been given varsity status yet. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, uh, we're, we're really good at kind of getting people to the next stage. Uh, mm-hmm. It's what we spent a lot of time on over the last like three years, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, we've been able to kind of address the the evolution of how people perceive esports and ultimately where that needs to go for people that are students or administrators to be comfortable with where things are going and ultimately hopefully build a, a very strong foundation for what's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 20, 100 years. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you end up choosing which schools are going to be big? So if you're looking at D1 schools, because the reason I'm saying this is I'm going to get into it in the NCAA question, which is I don't think the sports model necessarily is directly analogous. So when you're dealing with something like uh, these colleges, so when you're in the NCAA, you know which schools are big, either in basketball or football being the two, you know, sort of predominant definers of a big athletic school. So how do you, what criteria do you use to tell whether a school is going to be a big potential esports hub versus you know because you don't have those defined indicators i personally think a school like rit or mit is more likely to be a face of esports than would be oklahoma or clemson which are in the you know college football playoffs right we look at um a couple different factors of that one of the biggest being what impact we think uh, esports can have on the school and what impact the school can have on esports. So there's certainly a lot of people that run collegiate focused tournaments, Our organizations kind of focused on different aspects of how the environment develops. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is you still have pretty big thought leaders in this space, uh, not necessarily in esports, but in, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of set a lot of precedents and have a, a 
crazy amount of experience um, and know a lot about what they would want to change if they could. Mm-hmm. So we look at schools that have a really long history of dealing with athletics, um, not necessarily having like the biggest, baddest football program, mm-hmm. uh, but schools that we know have a, a set level of experience that we can tap into to make esports significantly better Mm -hmm. Uh, and at the same time looking at those schools that you know maybe are building different programs that would tend to overlap with like an esports fan population Mm -hmm. and say okay you know at your school you have 62,000 undergrads you're not programming for 17,000 of them as like some made-up number Uh, this is an option to impact a crazy amount of people very quickly Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's sort of part of how we do it and then besides that like we we develop communities rather than individual schools. Mm-hmm. So we look at where all of our high school interest is coming from, whether it's a, a city, a state, a district, whatever element of that is, uh, and whatever colleges are tied in to those communities to make sure that there's sort of one seamless integration of people mm-hmm. that are a part of the same area. That's smart. Uh, they can be excited about it and, and kind of do the different things that you do in traditional sports. Uh, and kind of get everybody involved and excited. And it all kind of goes back to that component of um, how we continue to to build awareness and goodwill towards esports, because you certainly you have students that are always doing this, but that's what brings out parents. It's what brings out random people from the community that are just curious about what's happening. Um, and it's how you start to kind of build um, that city-centric pride. Like I know a ton of people that are getting into Overwatch now because Excelsior is a New York City-based team. Uh, I, I, I was just thinking about that myself. <laughs> Yeah. So we try to to build on those elements because I mean, like I'm from Buffalo, I'm like diehard red, white and blue all the way through, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Bill Sabres or whatever. Um, regardless of what their, their outcomes might be. Which funny enough, I saw your, uh, your little article in the uh, Buffalo NPR news station. So I sort of knew you were from Buffalo. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm all about Buffalo. Um, and I, I really hope that, uh, I think that this is one of those things that it's inexpensive and Im- impactful enough to a community that, uh, as soon as I can bring it back to Buffalo in a meaningful way, uh, I, I hope that it will actually elevate, continue to elevate that community and go through the development that it has been. So I think esports has been such an incredible way to tap into this passion that people have whether mm-hmm. they kind of understand that it's something that they want and do it in a way that's um economically efficient and structured um, yeah and very broadly accessible mm-hmm. 100%. Um, we work with schools that uh, are in very low income areas that um just don't have access to a lot of stuff and maybe they can't afford new football equipment or they can't afford a field to play on and stuff like that but computers are relatively expensive there's a bunch of different ways for us to kind of work around some of those aspects of it mm-hmm. uh, and gaming is one of those activities that are fairly universal i mean you may care more about fifa or madden than you do about league of legends or overwatch mm-hmm. but fundamentally those are still gaming components and so everything we do is sort of focused on bringing those communities together regardless of who you are where you come from what your background is etc and teach as much the same moral and lessons as team sports, which is, you know, competing together, learning sportsmanship. Mm-hmm. So that's important. Um, Absolutely. So then jumping on to the NCAA. So I, so you've been described 
as vying to become the NCAA of collegiate esports. Um, I don't like that analogy. I'll be frankly honest. I <laughs> watched a video of someone pitching at Startup Saratoga in October 2015, and they made an interesting point that the NCAA is the one of the most effective monopolies in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. that was you at startup Saratoga yep. in October, just for the listeners. So, um, so within that realm, I think that the NCAA business model is quite broken and quite exploitative. And so mm-hmm. you have made, you know, specific attempts to differentiate yourselves from them in particular, focusing on the gamers and the community, uh, rather than a bottom line the way the NCAA does. But with the fact that a majority of this, of this gaming or esports competitions focus around prize pools. How are you guys, or has it been difficult to try to include the money pots into potential tournaments that you've done at the college level? Uh, because that's going to be a model. That's why I was mentioning earlier that I don't think the NCAA model is analogous to for esports. Um, you know, where have you found similarities in what the NCAA has done and aspects of that? that you would like to emulate and what are some aspects of it that you want to differentiate yourself from for the EGF? Yeah. I, I want to clarify that when we use that analogy, it's more for people to understand that like we run a league, not mm-hmm. necessarily that we run them the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, we, like I said, we spent a lot of time researching the entire history of the NCA and understanding, you know, the pivotal moments that made them what they are. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any denying that they and their leadership over the last 40 to 50 years really uh, have created the powerhouse that is college athletics. And so there is a benefit to some of the things that they do and the way they do them. And so our sort of thought process and philosophy in, in terms of how we develop everything has been to take the things that they've done really well, the precedence is set there. And that's things like a basic governance structure, having, you know, a regular season with playoffs and something that looks like March Madness and a bunch of elements that um, are sort of the fundamentals of what you expect from sports uh, and saying, okay, these things work really well. We can apply those to esports, and there isn't that much of a difference. And most of the differentiators come from specifically how we interact at the governance level um, with revenue models, really. Um, so we're a for-profit company, which is obviously very different from a non-profit that the NCA is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that because quote unquote non-profit. <laughs> yeah. We don't go in with the pretext of saying like, you know, we're a non-profit and blah, blah, blah. We mm-hmm. say like we're a for-profit company. Our job is to make money, but we don't do anything unless it's for the benefit of our students or for the institutions. So sometimes those are at odds with one another, but most often they're aligned with it. So it means how can we make as much money as we can for the schools and how do we make sure that students are a part of that? We explore a ton of different ways that that can happen. Um, And we take into account, you know, there is in some cases with some of these schools, hundreds of years of history and sort of precedent for how they do things. Mm -hmm. So you can't come in and say, Hey, we're going to like destroy everything that you've ever loved and known. And we're just (laughs) going to call up. So we're more, iterative, right? Mm-hmm. We, we look at it and say, let's, let's build and continue to improve on a model because we now have the flexibility to do so rather than say, we're going to blow everything up, start over from scratch. Um, and that has been something people have responded to pretty well. That's at, a time intensive all. process, my friend, having to customize literally every single potential esports uh, pitch for university specifications. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's an important thing, right? I, you'll find that there's certainly universal components that every university, every institution, every student even wants. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of pull on those common threads and say, here's this program, here's this platform and said, we're going to build this league. These are the you know five or six things that we care the most about. Here's how we implement those things and then get them involved in a conversation that is ultimately led by them and enacted by us that says, you know, what are the things that you would change if you could go back 50 years and make a different choice? Mm. What sort of things do you struggle with on a daily basis that we could make better? Uh, because we are effectively rewriting everything and starting from a clean slate, even which though is, we're using the framework. Yes, yeah, which is a huge advantage. And, and those are actually pretty great questions to see uh, the issues that have gone wrong and then have just been built on top of because they were too foundational to change after the fact. So, um, yeah, well, it's, a, it's really smart ideas. And then, so then now shifting away from college, because I know you guys just signed your first deal with a high school uh, with the state for a high school esports program, specifically the Connecticut Association of Schools to launch your first ever high school program. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Which, yeah, congratulations, so, by the way. <laughs> thanks. Um, like I said before, we, we really focus on the development of communities from top to bottom when it comes to uh, sort of youth esports all the way up to, to college because uh, we don't ever want to get into the pro side. I, I think that that's best done by the people that are already doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been able to sort of experiment with how within an educational system, how you look at that holistic picture of competition, education, engagement, et cetera. So we had been working with the University of Connecticut uh, at a club level for a while. We'd run events with them and such. Um, and we had found a bunch of schools that were sort of trying to do something between themselves, um, but weren't necessarily sure how to go about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got involved with that group of schools and, and trying to help them out and just you know say, you're a part of our community. We want to make sure that you succeed. Um, and ultimately, that led us to getting significantly more involved. Uh, and then ultimately, through uh, Clint Kennedy, who was the guy who sort of was the catalyst for all of this happening in Connecticut, uh, ended up talking with the state association and, and a bunch of other people that are, you know, at the state level to to talk about what esports can do for such a, a large population of students in a, in a small area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now uh, we're partnered with the state association. Uh, we built a, a joint governance board that works very similar to how they handle, you know, football and basketball and other student activities and mm-hmm. sports. Um, everything's built very similar, similarly, uh, and. Through them, we work with individual schools to help them get a program up and running, uh, ultimately competing in the league and kind of going through the the same sort of progression of regular season to playoffs, to national playoffs, et cetera. Um, and we'll be doing the same thing in a bunch of other states uh, coming very soon. Very cool. Very cool. Do you have do you have any specific goals or metrics that are going to define the success of the program or because it's the first of its kind, it's going to just be sort of, as you said, just sort of getting iterative feedback as to how to com- continually improve the process? It's definitely a, a continually iterative process. And I don't imagine that we'll ever really get to a point where we say this is exactly what it needs to be and we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, but the metrics that we look at are a combination of the number of schools that are involved, because obviously you can't have a league if you only got, you know, one school, uh, the number of students that are participating um, as a percentage of their school and ultimately of the, the total population in the state. Um, 
and that's from just a, a very generalized engagement uh, perspective. Then we look at um, the we try to find some way to quantitatively measure the qualitative effect of esports on a student, um, whether it has to do with their um, social skills or mm -hmm. ability to be a part of a community or whatever information that we can find about how people are using esports to their benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we also look at education and ultimately how many students are transitioning from a high school program to a college program that's somehow tangentially related to esports, uh, whether it's like game design and actual esports scholarship at a college that ha offers that or otherwise. Um, and so far, we've had a lot of really awesome responses. <laughs> uh, we've had um, something like 10% of all the, the schools in Connecticut after a couple of weeks uh, are signed up to go through all of our development processes. That's awesome. Um, on average, we're seeing anywhere from 45 to 75 students per school involved in their esports program in some capacity. Um, and every time we run an event, like when we ran our state championships uh, this past Saturday, we get parents and teachers and administrators and students all coming up to us and saying, like, this is, you know, my dream and this is awesome because my student um, who used to not really engaged with people now, you know, has friends coming over and they're part of a team and, you know, they seem a lot happier and, and those things are, are really hard to measure, but I, I think that they're ultimately what we do. Yeah. Certainly, absolutely. certainly as a business, we want more numbers and things like that, but the, the qualitative stuff is a lot more important to us because if, if we ever went to one of those events and had somebody say, this was a bad experience, uh, I don't care if we had a million or like, a billion people doing something with us, I would consider that a failure of our system. That's actually, I mean, that's definitively the best potential mindset you could have for something like this. And, you know, from going to grassroots to informational to what you just said in terms of there is a large number of kids in high schools who are big gamers and who wouldn't try out for the football team, but would be maybe the captain of their esports team. And that just creates a whole new life for the kids that were involved in that, as you're saying, socially. Uh, and I'm also a firm believer in gamifying self-improvement. So it also sort of focuses on that by shifting a lot of the mindsets of these kids. So uh, yeah. that's, I mean, it's a great way to go about it. It's a great way to measure success. And it's something, as you were saying, that uh, over a couple of years, the next five to 10 years, once you start getting this data and you start growing the programs, you're just going to start being able to then put the actual quantifying measures on those quality aspects that you uh, prefer or enjoy more than the, the revenue oriented aspects. Yeah. And behind it, there's just so much cool data that we're starting to get as to how our system is better serving someone or where it can be improved. Um, and that kind of goes to some of the more surprising stuff for me is that we see a lot of crossover between traditional sports participation and esports participation, as well as a total group of people that will only do one or the other. Absolutely. Um, and, but the cool thing about that is even the ones that like refuse to get involved in esports or, or like maybe they just don't understand or care enough, they still come out and support their team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a high school and like their league of legends team, we've had, you know, football players and wrestlers and track and soccer and whatever all show up and say like, I don't necessarily understand what's going on, but I know that this is my team and we need to beat this other team. Yeah. And so school spirit, like, you know, how many times, like even through your college, you know, you always just, I just dislike my competitive, you know, school. I don't even know anyone from there. I just dislike them. I was like, Oh, you're from there. 
there. I don't like you anymore. And we're going to beat you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so, you know, now we've gotten to a lot of the questions. So funny enough, I, I think personally, you've seen the most investment in esports by NBA teams and owners because they share the same crossover demographic. So it would help in concentrating focus on the younger generation coming up. But that is neither here nor there. I have had you already for 35 minutes. I imagine you got a pretty busy day. So I'm just going to ask you a quick, a few quick fire questions uh, sure. that are, are a bit lighter and not so seriously focused on the <laughs> the growth of esports at the college and high school level and the NCAA. So based off that, what's your take on loot boxes just kidding that's a controversial opinion you can share that if you want to but you don't have to if you don't want to um i i spent a lot of money on them so i guess i would probably be sound hypocritical if i said exactly uh, i i I was dipping into a few winter wonderland boxes just the other day so i'm not gonna criticize them but um i I put my ten dollars in so i can get that legendary uh Santa Torbjorn. (laughs) you know how it goes so all right um this is an easier one favorite console uh right now the nintendo switch over time uh ever probably super nintendo interesting interesting i'm a nintendo fanboy i had a playstation for a while uh for a long time and i also did xbox but uh nintendo is the only one that's consistently kept me interested that is fair i think that the wii was great i i was always I want to say Xbox because I want to say Halo had a a very defining time on understanding gaming for me. So uh, Xbox, 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 everyone had Xbox and PS2 though. So that's not even a question, (laughs) you know, like that, that was like the height of console gaming. So that was, so we're going to go with, all right, so we got the Nintendo guy. So then what video game, or since you're a Nintendo guy, I'm going to say this answer is relatively going to be, easy to predict but what <laughs> video game or video game series has been most important to you in your life oh geez um there's actually a couple of them so i am sure that i know the obvious one you're going for but i would say one of them was uh the devil may cry series uh, which was is still one of my all-time favorite games like uh, even the the third and fourth ones that aren't always popular with everybody yeah, that's true. Um, but that was pretty big for me um i think it, like as obvious and cliche as it might be super mario has like by far been one of the most impactful for me because when i started gaming i was i was probably three years old when i started gaming um and that was because my older brother and sister way older than me 10 and 8 years um and they didn't really care about like legos and stuff mm-hmm. uh, but they love video games and i love just being a part of that so that was the kind of the first game that introduced me to the idea over time that it didn't really matter what we were playing it was about the experience that you build around those games mm-hmm. um and super mario just happened to be the one that we always had in common uh, you know, my sister liked Twisted Metal more than I did. So maybe classic. we disagreed on some of those. Yeah, exactly. but, <laughs> Super Mario, Mario Kart, all of that. Like it may have destroyed our relationships temporarily, you know, because Mario Kart does that. But it does. It's sort of like Monopoly in that way. <laughs> right. But at the same time, like uh, two Christmases ago, uh, my parents like bought whatever the, the Mario game for the Wii was. And like, all of us in our family, I, there are five kids in my family, including myself, we're all playing Super Mario together. And it's so it's been like this timeless sort of thread that's 
always shown an importance of video games to me. But then outside of that, games like um, Devil May Cry, Counter-Strike, if you count it as a series and it's three iterations, has been, you know, why I got into esports in the first place. So I, I would say those are my top three, but I have loved so many video games. Yeah, exactly. I know it's, a, it's always a tough question. It's one that I want to start possibly giving people ahead of time to debate uh, yeah. because it's, it, it's a big one, but, you know, it's always a fun little thing. Um, yeah. How long do you think before the IOC accepts esports into the Olympics? If you had to give a, a general guesstimate. I think, for, uh, wait, when's the next Olympics? 2020? 2020. 2020. I'd say it might happen by 2020. 2024 is probably safe. I think the question isn't so much as to whether or not they're going to accept something. It'll be what that something is. Fair point. Because if they say like... FIFA is going to be an Olympic sports. Uh, maybe that matters, but at the same time, they're not going to allow something like Counter-Strike or Call of Duty or some of the more classic esports titles. Yeah, which is what I saw when they they released their statement, which, you know, esports is sports, which congratulations, Olympic Committee. You don't need to really <laughs> announce that. But regardless, the, the fact that they mentioned that they don't want games that celebrate violence. And I'm like, have you ever seen what <laughs> esports is? <laughs> like, I have... I, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I would be really interested to see the Olympics do is less of trying to catch up with games. So League of Legends and Dota and stuff like that would probably fit their criteria. A game like Rocket League would probably be an obvious opportunity. Mm -hmm. What I'm more interested in is getting into like mixed reality games that would be more more accessible, I think, to people that don't understand esports as opposed to trying to teach someone Dota or League um, and also is kind of ahead of the curve. So if you could imagine uh, like a Tron equivalent, you know, mm -hmm. whatever that game happened to be, if that was introduced to the Olympics, I think that that's significantly more impactful for that type of game. Uh, because I would make the argument that, you know, we have the LCS World Championships. We've got ESL events that happen all over the place. We've got the international. I, I don't know that the Olympics really adds anything to that category of gaming. I cannot disagree when you put it like that. That's, like, <laughs> um, that's a pretty good perspective. Yeah, but this is something that something like that is what I would really love to see because I think it's it's iterative. It shows that you know they're they're caring about the future. It elevates a platform that may not get the type of audience that you would in other categories or, or you know channels or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, plus, that's something that I've always wanted to see happen. <laughs> so uh, that would be that would be my hope. My mm -hmm. guess is they're probably going to be a little bit more aggressive and focus on a game like Rocket League, which is still fine. Yeah, uh, it's I, nothing I against Rocket League, but simultaneously, if you want to push the whole industry forward. But again, VR is a little bit questionable, even going into sure. the next year. So we'll see. Yeah. Although by 2024, maybe. I mean, yes, I think hopefully. they could also do if there's uh, an earth left. <laughs> they could be doing something like um, drone racing. Yeah, uh, drone racing is really, really cool. It makes me think of the uh, the racing from Star Wars Episode One, the pod racing. Pod racing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I think all that's totally viable. I 100% uh, agree. I, my danger or the dangerous part of that or what might lead it to that is I would guess that although I'm sure the Olympic Committee asks a lot of people what things are, they sort of might lack an understanding that would allow them to make progressive choices. Mm. So we'll see. Fair point. But that's, my <laughs> that's fair. Uh, do you see I got two more questions for you. Uh, do you see PUBG as a potential major future esport 
I'm going to say I don't. I just don't think it lends itself to a good uh, viewer experience. Your take? Um, there, I have conflicting opinions about it because I play PUBG now more than love the almost game. anything. Absolutely love the game. But there are logistics things as an organizer that make it a little bit more challenging to address. That being said, it's still technically an early access game. There's a lot of stuff that I, I think that they are aware that they need to address for it to happen. Um, and part of it, I, the reason that I am still optimistic about it being there, whether or not it has the staying power or something like Counter-Strike or League or Dota, um, is you sort of have like these different levers that have to start being adjusted at the same time. One of them being the capability of the game itself to produce that story. So how you handle story modes, um, even really basic stuff like when you watch it, you should be able to differentiate squads easier than they do right now through, you know, different color schemes or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that was something uh, Overwatch did really well. I thought the revamped spectator mode really created probably the first East or first game that I've seen that even a, uh, a, a casual gamer could potentially follow the action of because league is just way too fast. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, but that also took them almost a year and a half or two years. Oh, yeah. About a year and a half. Yeah, to, to yeah, yeah. So I think there's a technology perspective that needs to get caught up with in PUBG, obviously getting the game to a point where you don't randomly get launched like a thousand feet in the air while you're driving is another component of it. Also true. <laughs> uh, but on the other side, um, having people trained in the storytelling aspect of it, it it's the same way that, you know, when you put a camera in front of someone, it's a really capable tool, but you have to teach that person how to use that tool to tell a compelling story, mm. which ultimately is what makes the match enjoyable. And I think um, you start to see people like Pansy coming over from Counter-Strike uh, that are starting to vocalize the story. Mm -hmm. um, but just as important, the observers behind that, uh, which I think Sapphire is now a part of and, and some others, um, being able to... to produce a compelling thing mm -hmm. uh, and, and so those levers sort of being pulled in tandem is something that still needs to happen uh, but it's starting to get there so i don't know if it's going to have this this staying power that i want but it's certainly got the potential to do so um and i could say the same for fortnite because you know we obviously deal with content challenges at the younger ages with parents and stuff like that yeah and fortnite's like a viable alternative in some components is, uh, so, a cartoon sort of team fortress 2 version of it does seem more uh, right. But it, it still runs into the same challenges with, you know, technical stuff and storytelling and whatever. So I, I hope that it, it continues at least, if nothing else, if it never makes it as like a crazy awesome esport, I hope that it stays in business because uh, that game keeps me coming back even when I say I hate it. So, yeah, I agree. Every time I get really mad at it, I'm like, well, I'm just going to try it again anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad they added interview uh, uh, or not interview replays because you know yep. that was one thing man that was one real thing like are you kidding me where did that even come from? where did that even come? but see that's what i sort of miss now because i'm like i see the replay i'm like ah this is too structured it was like the wild west a month ago where like <laughs> you just sit there for 40 minutes and then someone just pops you while you're prone on the ground and you're like well shit time to i lost those 45 minutes i suppose yeah, but, it was uh, like a very long and stressful walk around the woods. Seriously, seriously. And then I guess just for a last question, um, what are what is the future looking like for EGF? Do you have anything coming up in the next few months that you want to mention to the listeners? Uh, and for anyone listening, uh, your Twitter for EGF is at 
the uh, at official EGF, that's the Electronic mm-hmm. Gaming Federation. Um, yes. Yeah, so as I was saying, what do you got going on in the future? Um, let's see what's going to happen after the new year. Uh, we get to make a couple more announcements on some partnerships that we've been working on for the last couple of months. Uh, that we hope will make a pretty significant impact uh, in our community and, and certainly in the broader world. Mm-hmm. Um, we're spending a lot of time uh, in other countries, a lot of time in other states, and a lot of times with some big college names that I imagine will take a little bit longer as uh, large institutions do. Mm-hmm. As but, always, the shit moves um, slowly. But I think uh, over the course of like Q1, Q2, so probably before the end of the spring semester, we'll be able to talk about this crazy amount of stuff that uh, we put in motion that um, takes a lot of prep, but is, is going to be super cool. Um, and so I, I assume that's probably, probably yeah, you, it, it, it was vague, but you got a big 2018 coming up. You got a lot of stuff in the work. Don't yeah. jinx anything by announcing it until it's official. So hopefully <laughs> yeah. I'll have you back on in the future if you are not bored by this conversation. And then we could you know, touch it back on those things. Um, of course. Thank um, you. And if, if oh. I may, before we leave, uh, I always plug my friends uh, at Anxiety Gaming whenever I do these because uh, they are a nonprofit that help uh, provide resources to people struggling with mental health challenges. Uh, and they're some of the most amazing people in the world. Uh, so if you want to support them or if you are in need of their services, uh, you go to anxietygaming.com or just go talk to Jason Dotton because that dude is like an angel on earth. Do you so, have his Twitter he, handle by chance? I get these people to hit him up on Twitter. Uh, yes. I just need to find it no, real quick. Time, time. <laughs> he um, has been one of those people that sort of inspired me to be better because uh, we've certainly always had an interest in like the social impact of what we can do to people but for people Absolutely. Uh, but I, th- I think they're probably the most amazing and actually making it happen um, so you can find uh, anxiety gaming at anxiety gaming ag on twitter uh, or jason at j docton d-o-c-t-o-n awesome and remember guys mental health is very important so if you do feel anything, be sure to check them out. As Tyler's saying, wonderful people. Be sure to say hello. Give them a follow. Uh, no, no, take care of yourselves. And uh, thank you for that, Tyler. That's actually a really wonderful way uh, to end that. Um, thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, you know, have you again in the future. See what the big 2018 is for the EGF. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Uh, actually, one, one quick side note. This is actually even related to the interview. Um, sure. Have you thought about cloud gaming at all? Because I, I genuinely really find what you guys are doing interesting. And in terms of cloud gaming, uh, that 